brand loyalty. There are few who understand that term as well as bankers do. More than any other industry, service, or brand, our relationships to our banks are practically inherited. The trip you took to open up your first account with your parents, remember that? Oh, like a lot of firsts, it's a life event, like the time you walked to the store alone or got behind the wheel of the family station wagon. Cue the Wonder Years soundtrack. And do you remember being asked who you'd like to entrust your money with for the rest of your life? No, you were taken to your family's bank. And then, once you were already a customer, you would, at some point, learn what a bank actually does. And really, I mean, why would we have even questioned it? You inherited your bank like you inherited your clothes and your taste in country music. If you live here, it's more than likely that you bank with one of the big five, RBC, TD, BMO, Scotiabank, or CIBC all of which are federally regulated and chartered under the Banking Act. The Globe's Joe Castaldo refers to Canada's establishment as a deeply entrenched banking oligopoly. Think of it as monopoly if there were five guys with top hats instead of just one. The 2008 financial crisis in the U.S. rocked the global economy. And that very same year, the World Economic Forum published a report rating Canada's banking system as the world's soundest, and safest, giving it a 6.8 out of 7. Yay us! But despite the honor, Canadians haven't always been the biggest fans, and with good reason. I mean, come on, in Canada we like to bitch about three things, our government, our telcos, and our banks. Look, there's a laundry list of issues with the system as it stands, starting with its history of stale, pale, and male. Then there's the high, sometimes completely unnecessary fees, the extra charges for ATM use and other basic services. And that's not to mention the aggressive and sometimes outright illegal sales tactics. In a 2017 investigation by the CBC's Erica Johnson, they garnered over 1,000 emails from employees at each of the big five, exposing the unrealistic sales targets they were asked to meet. Many came forward to describe how they were regularly pressured into pushing products that customers didn't need, upselling when it wasn't in their best interest, and even hiding high interest rates. Customers deserve to know what's being done to them at their institution. There are about 120,000 people registered as financial professionals in Canada, but only a fraction have a legal responsibility to act in the client's best interest. Other bank employees who contacted us said they would like to give financial advice, but in reality, they are pushing products to hit sales targets. The banking regulator, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, issued its report last year saying there was a sharp focus on sales, but it did not find widespread mis-selling. Now, internal government documents reveal that regulator sent a draft copy of its report to the banks themselves. And for a long time, despite a lingering lack of trust, for many, the Big Five were among the only meaningful options for banking and financial support services. But that balance of power might be on the verge of a tipping point. 2008 didn't just bring economic anxiety, it also sparked a new generation of financial technology companies, fintechs, that are now coexisting with the banking system while challenging its rigidity. Wealth Simple has made a name for itself as in Canada as a disruptor in the financial services business. Klarna, that is disrupting the payment space with this buy now, pay later model. Vault Bank, 
has now been awarded a license to operate. So PayPal has it, Amazon has it, the banks don't really have it. Spent about $28 billion in salaries, $10 billion on technology, 6,000 branches. That's a lot to defend when the disruptors are coming in and going, I don't have any of those. There's only two kinds of banks, those who are screwed and those who don't know that they're screwed. And these fintechs are just a few early shots in the growing vanguard of companies that are looking to transform your banking experience. And in the process, disrupt one of our most complicated and long-lasting relationships. What would it even mean to disrupt the key players in an industry that our government has already co-signed as too big to fail? And is what's in the best interest of the banks always in our best interest? Today, we're looking at the disruption of personal finance from the investment startup that shook Canada's industry and changed the way money talks to an emerging neobank overhauling the traditional banking experience. And what does the head of innovation at Canada's largest bank have to say about that? I'm your host, Ron Tite, and this is The Coup. Look, for a lot of us, investing is a black box. I invest. But I don't think I can tell you exactly how the system works. And honestly, I don't want to have to figure it out. And that is exactly why I get someone to oversee my portfolio. But that, of course, is not an option for most people. I mean, if I were a 23-year-old with next to no disposable income and I was looking to set up an investment account, well, given how stressful it would be to bet my meager savings on something I didn't really understand, well, you'd think I'd feel more comfortable with, you know, a, a human being talking me through the process. But wouldn't you know, the main person I'd have the means to tap for advice also happens to be working on commission. Which makes sense for the bank, but not so much for me. Now, I'm not saying there's funny business about it. I mean, brokering is a licensed profession. But that doesn't mean the system is set up to best serve this hypothetical 20-something version of me. He was very cute. And he had hair. So we're lucky that over the last decade, a bunch of smart entrepreneurs have come along to, for the first time, offer us a cheap, guided tour into the world of investing. And people are kind of liking these new options. Enter the robo-advisors. It's a service that takes the place of human consultants and uses algorithms to manage your investments. They took off in America during the crisis and gained popularity in 2010. Four years later, Canada got its own premier robo-advisor and fintech golden child, Wealthsimple. Assets under management by Canadian robo-advisors have been more than steadily growing. Jumping from about 300 million bucks in 2015 to over 18 times that by 2019. If you can't do the mental math, that's over 5.8 billion. This according to the Globe and Mail's report on business. And it's not just robo-advisors. Half of Canadians are now using fintech services, up from just 18% in 2017, according to a recent survey from Ernst & Young Global. So, how have these early fintechs earned our trust and changed the landscape so far? 
And what are they offering us that a human at our local branch can't? My name is Fiona Colley. I'm a reporter with Investment Executive, which is a national newspaper for financial advisors. Fiona writes about fintech for an army of over 40,000 financial advisors across Canada. And in these parts, any conversation about fintech amongst us civilians usually starts with one company. When I started reporting on fintech, on robo-advisors, you know, back when they first started coming out uh, around about 2015, friends, whatever, would be asking what I would do and I would explain and I'd get kind of blank looks. And to be fair, like I'm in that millennial category and stuff. And round about a year, year and a half ago, I would start to explain to people the kinds of companies that I was reporting on. And they would say like, oh, you mean like Wealthsimple? Right. And that was really interesting to me. And I think that, uh, to me, spoke a lot to the power of the advertising that they are doing. Fiona wasn't used to financial institutions directly marketing to millennials like her. And Wealthsimple changed that. You may recognize them for their select personable marketing campaigns led by Jacob Weinstein. Money was something that you weren't supposed to talk about. It was like de classe. But when you watch your economy crash as you enter the workforce for the first time... Um, there was no money to save. If people were talking more openly about money, it would be better. Right? That Investing for Humans series, that was the first bit of marketing I'd ever seen from a financial company that was truly and genuinely honest about how complicated and emotionally loaded it can be to manage your money. And they recently ponied up big bucks to air a national TV commercial titled Kawhi during the finals of the Toronto Raptors championship run to advertise their new trading platform. You get that? Because he came over in a trade. So it's a trading platform. You get it? You had, you had to be there, I guess. With that, they've been able to do something few thought possible. They've made investing seem cool. Well, Simple knew they weren't just pitching themselves as the newest choice in a crowded industry. They were selling an audience on an industry that, as Fiona's experience can tell you, many Canadians weren't in on. So there was plenty of room for Wealthsimple to position itself as the cost-effective, humanizing alternative to going it alone or not at all. When they were first coming, the, the financial services market, you know, uh, at the bank level to get a financial advisor relationship kind of thing, often you need about $100,000, give or take. None of Canada's big five had really tried to get millennials investing because it never seemed like it was a viable market. Or at least they made a habit of targeting the most lucrative markets, home buyers, wealthy investors, retirees, and parents saving up for their kids' education, 50-year-old people like me. Before the robo-advisors came along, the industry narrative tended to be, hey, this stuff is complicated. Good thing I'm here to bank-splain it to you. You've seen the ads. Open on a beach. A couple, probably in their late 50s, fit, vibrant, sunshiny, tanned, enter the frame. They carry surfboards. They look at the camera, they give you that wink, and they say, ah, we're retired. 
and they storm off the beach and enter the ocean. Up comes the super with a bunch of complicated financial terms and interest rates and performance rates with legal bird type down at the bottom at two-point font and a warm voiceover from a trusted financial institution with 100 years of legacy says, trust us, you can be like them. I don't want to surf when I retire. Yeah, so I think there was obviously a space for these companies to to come in and to say this is an easy, low-cost kind of way to access investing to get started, even if you don't have a lot. It's kind of like how Kayak and Expedia and all the rest changed travel bookings. They made it possible for you to see the back end of the market so you could find your own best deal without that, you know, costly expert. But to open a DIY lane in the market for financial services? Well, Simple knew they didn't just have to create a great advising software. They pretty much had to become a financial literacy organization too. What they came up with was a user-friendly software interface and data-driven tools for customers to manage their own investments. And they paired that with the wraparound support, jargon-free materials, easy onboarding, and quick customer support. Streamlining and humanizing all those complex details in the process. So. Now it was possible for practically anyone to start investing. So certainly when the the robo-advisors first came out and stuff, it was about this is an easy entry point for people looking to kind of get started. It's low fee. Maybe you don't have a lot of money because you've got student debts or you're not thinking about investing, but this is an easy way to get into um, the market. And while the service has been labeled and advertised towards millennials, they've been successful with Gen Xers and even some boomers, okay? Okay, Boomer. Well, Simple has worked hard to attract lower wealth customers of all ages. I mean, they offer no minimum investment requirement and a low 0.5 fee for all investments under 100 grand. So far, they've made some significant progress reporting $5 billion in assets and more than 175,000 clients as of this October. But even with that success, Well, Simple is struggling to establish a sustainable profit margin and so are robo-advisors around the world. Last month, Wealthsimple CEO and founder Michael Ketchen landed a glossy profile in the Globe Mail's report on business. And even as their ability to turn a profit from slack market share comes into question, Ketchen's ambition has disruptor written all over it. When asked about Wealthsimple's intentions, he told Globe reporter Joe Castaldo that the, quote, explicit goal is to replace a bank as our client's primary financial relationship, end quote. And while that's lofty, he's not naive. Catch and acknowledge that Wealthsimple isn't currently disrupting big banks. After all, as Castaldo points out, their $5 billion in assets makes them a tiny little wee small fish in Canada's wealth management services, Ocean. And for some perspective on the currents that Wealthsimple is swimming against, National Bank, Canada's smallest major bank that is sometimes lumped in with the big five, making it the big six, well, National Bank alone has an investing division that oversees $104 billion in assets, over 20 times bigger than Wealthsimple's. But Fiona says that the big five or six or whatever, they've taken notice. This is the future. And I think that they recognize that and they're looking to make sure that they remain 
players uh, in that space. I mean, these are the big banks and, you know, is their lunch going to be eaten or not kind of thing. And they're out to make sure that doesn't happen. In fact, they're getting in on the game. The banks, they are looking at this. They are or have launched something in some form and yeah. they're investing heavily in technology and they they have to. The official launch of robo-advisors in Canada have increased the speed at which a lot of the banks um, have been pursuing these kinds of areas because that is how clients of all ages, you know, want to interact with their bank. In 2016, two years after Wealthsimple launched, BMO came out with Smartfolio, the first digital portfolio management service offered by a big five bank. Last year, RBC rolled out its service, Investees, nationally. And just this past September, the giant announced that for the first time ever, there would be no minimum requirement for clients to open an account through their service. You know, like what Wealthsimple offered from the jump. So once the big guys are copying what you do, that's home run disruption, right? Well, not so fast. After spending decades, and in some cases over a century, building trust, consolidating power, and benefiting from government backing. The big banks are still the big banks. They still hold a lot of the distribution in Canada. And hey, look, it's going to take a lot more than great advertising and flashy tech to change that. So while its growth has been impressive for a startup, they're nowhere close to taking on the giants. And for now, their investors seem to be fine with that. And I should mention, this past May, Power Financial invested $30 million into Wealthsimple, taking an 89% stake. When it comes to old money in Canada, you can't get much older than power. So Fiona thinks that the future of fintech will likely be shaped by collaboration much more than competition. So I think in terms of how it will evolve, from the robo-advisor space, it's about gaining more traction, not just at the consumer level and that consumer awareness, but very importantly about more and more partnering with the financial industry and to help them to kind of, you know, offer this as another option to clients. I wanted to get a window into the other fintech entrants working to overhaul and improve our banking experience and the relationships forming between them and established players. My name is Daniel, and I am the CEO and co-founder of Coho. Like a certain breed of startup CEO, Daniel Eberhard, well, he... I guess it's not true that I never had a job, but I never had like an adult job. Right. You know what I mean? His first venture into entrepreneurship was in the energy sector. I went to school in Calgary, and I started doing what everybody does, which is they start interviewing at the big companies. And in Calgary, that's all oil and gas and energy. Um, and I come from like a fairly let's call it hippie background with my parents and stuff. Mm -hmm. So one, that was an unnatural experience for me. But two, it was just the idea of supply chain management and like the, it just felt awful. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was fortunate that I had like the confidence and the support to go try and start a wind energy company with a friend. But at heart, he'd always been a numbers guy. I was like the guy who was talking to my mom about why mutual funds are not great products and, you know, some of those things. And as his passion for wind energy faded, he started noticing something he couldn't shake. I went traveling for a while. And in Europe, I just saw like a totally different banking infrastructure, totally different levels of clarity and access and, and came back here. And um, his friends were complaining about charges from their banks all the time. So naturally, I asked 10 of my friends for their bank statements and my brother had paid $85 in bank fees in three months and he didn't know it. And like, it's one thing if you pay 
way more than everybody in bank fees as a country. Yeah. And it's another thing if you don't know it. And I thought both of those just felt like unfair. And then Daniel made a hard pivot into the world of fintech to figure out how to solve this problem. And after two years of beta testing, he'd launched his startup Coho 2017. And today he oversees a rapidly growing staff. I've been to his office. I've met them. They're nice people. But my friends, whenever I do dumb things, they're like, I can't believe you run a bank. You know, <laughs> so it's a, it's a double edged sword. Yeah. But let's be real. Experimenting with investing through a robo advisor is one thing. But honestly, do I trust a startup to oversee my savings, let alone day to day spending? Uh, I don't know. And Daniel knows a lot of people feel the same way. That's why he doesn't ask you to trust him with it. See, Daniel only sort of runs a bank. Coho is what you'd call a neobank. What it means is that we leverage what's very good about the Canadian banking infrastructure, which is that the deposits are held as a chartered bank. Um, and so we're not a deposit-taking institution. Right. We have a partner bank who holds the money and we don't touch it. And then we sit on top of that. So right. we build the app, the experience, the user support, the brand, and everything that touches you as a consumer. Coho's back end is that of the People's Trust, a federally recognized trust company, kind of like a boutique bank based in Vancouver that holds their users' funds. And so because of that, there's a couple of advantages. One, we're not regulated like a bank because we're not actually responsible for your deposits, which right. you don't want to start up holding your deposits. Yeah. Um, and two, we get to move a lot quicker when it comes to delivering the type of consumer experience that we think is valuable to users and, and helping them understand their finances. Sure. He still has to work with the man, but it also means Daniel can take calculated risks toward building something better that doesn't risk anyone's money. When you sign up for Coho, you get a reloadable prepaid card that essentially works like a debit card. They got two tiers of accounts, with a third one launching soon. You got the choice between their free card, Coho Premium, which costs $9 a month, and their metal card is coming soon. And since they're partnered with Visa, a Coho card is accepted anywhere the credit giant is. So, with Visa and federally recognized CDIC-insured player willing to put their credibility and reputation on the line to back them, I get why people are handing over their money and sensitive financial info to Daniel. And it turns out it's more than just a few willing to make that switch. According to Betakit, as of this May, Coho's had over 120,000 users open up accounts across Canada, and they've recently hit $500 million in annualized transactions. But while Daniel's trying to make Coho his user's number one financial service, he's not looking to replace the bank itself. So I think the first thing is that like banking is no place for anarchy, right? Yeah, and there's yeah. certainly a lot of gradations on the spectrum between our banking infrastructure today, between a competitive banking infrastructure and between anarchy where people are, you know, turning, opening banks in the middle of the night. So essentially, he's remodeling the bank house instead of tearing it down to build a new one. We're just pushing for like a directional improvement in right. that spectrum. But here's what I don't get. If you needed a traditional bank to back you, why work with a boutique over a giant like CIBC or BMO? They are the largest prepaid issuer in Canada. And so yep. this is on a, a prepaid card. So yep. they, they had the best infrastructure and the most exposure. Also. I think that they're a relationship that we felt like we could execute well against, and they've been great partners for us. Um, you know, I just don't see, frankly, the movement, the urgency, the technology 
in any of the larger partners that, right. that would have allowed us to be successful. Right. Is it a is it a good business for them? Like, are they, you know, is this something where they would they would prefer to just be the back end for a bunch of neo banks like you? I mean, I think it depends on on who you're talking about. I think for sure in the case of People's Trust, it is. Yeah. Um, RBC has a different take yeah, because sure. they have a highly valued brand and yeah. a lot of market awareness and stuff. But these, you know, this bank doesn't have the resources to build a consumer brand. Um, and so for them, we're just a really great source of deposit sourcing because they get the assets and like we do all the work yeah. in terms of sourcing it, which we're fine with because we want the relationship with the consumer. Yeah. So it's, it's a good alignment. For Coho, creating a great banking experience is all about giving their users effective and timely insight into their spending. See, while their cards and accounts are meant for everyday use, Coho has been designed to help its users save. Their power-ups feature gives 0.5% cash backs on every purchase. They also encourage users to get specific with their savings, with their feature goals, whether they're putting money away for a trip or a new bike, you can set up a reoccurring contribution to save up for it. And Roundups makes auto contributions to a savings goal every time you spend by rounding up the cost of any purchase to the nearest one, five, or even $10 amount. We do a lot of the heavy lifting for use and then give you the feedback loops around saving because frankly, people have a lot of bad habits when it comes to it. But if you get the positive feedback loop, that's another thing that's completely missing from the traditional banking experience. So like uh, when people have a goal, right, uh, and they're saving for it, you get a, you know, you've hit 25% of your goal for your trip to Iceland, which is $700. And people are like, holy shit, I'm 10 days into this and I've saved $170 for Iceland and I didn't even know it. You know what I mean? And then so if you can start to create a positive association with savings and build the feedback loops in, in a positive way around savings, um, that's a really big part of the equation too. Even the way Coho displays your balance is informed by this. The Globe's tech reporter, Josh O'Kane, writes, quote, users see a spendable balance that subtracts the necessary goal savings rather than a gross total balance, giving them a more realistic portrayal of their finances, end quote. And, of course, Coho promises their users no hidden fees. I mean, for their entry-level users, it seems like there's no fees at all. No account startup fee or monthly payment, no interest charges, e-transfers are free, and there is no petty, costly punishments for an insufficient funds bounce. And this past April, they launched What the Fee, a tool open to the public that securely accesses your current bank account to calculate how much you've been charged in fees over the last 90 days. Coho says that Canadians pay an average of $159 in bank fees per year. The Cooch producer Ali Graham gave the tool a try and found out that she's paid over $100 in the last 90 days alone. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> you did? Okay. Let's talk later. Yeah. But Coho isn't just fighting to set itself apart from the big five because the neobanking space is only going to get more competitive. And this rise in competition is directly connected to open banking. Which is basically that you as a consumer are the owner of your data. Mm -hmm. And so the banks have to make that publicly available on your behalf to those entities that you choose, which are whitelisted. And it just, at its core, it's a data rights issue. For those new to the phenomenon, like me, Investopedia outlines it as a, quote, 
practice that provides third-party financial service providers open access to consumer banking, transaction, and other financial data from banks and non-bank financial institutions. Continuing, they say that open banking can help financial services customers to securely share their financial data with other financial institutions, end quote. Open banks refer to this next generation of client services that help you make sense of your web of financial data. With your consent and login access, companies like Coho, Wealthsimple, the prominent budgeting app Mint.com, they pool your financial data from your current financial institutions, usually a major bank. And then, with sophisticated tech and design, they repackage that data as part of their services for you, the user. And like I've said, look, Coho is just one company in a wave. Daniel's peers include N26, a mobile banking service in Europe, and Revolut, a startup delivering foreign exchange without fees. A bank is regulated in Canada, and it is very difficult to operate a bank outside of Canada and vice versa. But these fintechs, like us, we can go and operate depending on the regulatory infrastructure and like skip between countries and open these things up very, very quickly. Like like transfer-wise... Uh, which is a great peer-to-peer money transfer service. Um, it works because they just have funds in the UK and funds in the US and funds in Canada. Yeah. And then they just match buyers and sellers so that they're not taking any, uh, they're not actually moving money across borders at all. Right, right. Right. They're just like matching buyers and sellers and yeah. keeping a liquidity float in each in each country. And so they don't have any regulatory regime. And so there's more and more people who are figuring out ways to do this like us. But here's where things get tricky. This past June, The Globe's Bill Curry reported that, quote, more than 4 million Canadians are willingly handing over their banking passwords to fintech companies. And the Senate Banking Committee says Ottawa must create a strong oversight regime that includes providing consumers with a list of approved third-party apps, end quote. And even with your authorization, technically... Banks have the right, under their terms of service, to deny third-party access or simply make it harder to find that information on the back end. In Europe, there's something called open banking. Yeah. Um, And they went from talking about it to forcing their banks to do it in probably like 24 to 30 months. Mm -hmm. In Canada, we've been talking about open banking, where I think it's even a more crucial issue for coming up on three and a half years now and formed a group of people at a policy level to keep talking about it. I mean, Canadians are already sharing their sensitive data. There's just no rules for the companies enabling it. That same Ernst & Young survey I brought up when I was talking about robo-advisors with Fiona, well, it found that after the issue of awareness, the primary reason people had for not trying these fintechs and neobanks was a lack of trust in startup financial firms. And Ron Stokes of Ernst & Young said, Regardless of whether respondents were or weren't using these new services, they reported that they, quote, worry about the security of their personal data online and demonstrate greater trust in traditional institutions and providers who offer face-to-face interactions. It makes sense. I mean, it's a big change to transfer some of your banking, let alone all of it, to a company you just heard about last week. Trying to shake up how you store your money? That's going to raise some eyebrows, especially without a comprehensive regulatory framework in place. 
This is Canada. We like rules. But Daniel looks at it this way. When it comes to questions of trust, well, he thinks it's about more than just protecting people's money. It's about protecting their interests. I think that the two components of trust that really matter are, you know, is my money secure? And will this institution support me? And I think banks are really good at keeping your money secure and very flawed at delivering like aligned customer experiences and and products, right? So for us, like the thing that is good about the Canadian banking climate is that we've done a good job of managing systemic risk and we came out of 2008 really well. I think where it gets really confusing is that like we have a very non-competitive banking environment. Canadians really struggle under a lot of the financial products that are sold in Canada. But... Daniel isn't so sure that Canadian's regulator, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institution, or OSFI, if you're in a rush, he's not so sure they'll do everything that's needed to change that. See, he doesn't think managing systemic risk is the only reason it favors the big five holding on to this market power. So like OSFI, which is the Canadian bank regulator, loves to work with five banks because they have a ton of control because it's five banks. Right. But that time of like Apple has $200 billion in cash. They're yeah. now issuing a credit card. Yeah. If Apple decides to issue a mortgage tomorrow, nobody can stop them. Right. And that includes the banking regulators, right, right, right. right? Because they have the cash and they can just do it off their balance sheet. Yeah. If regulation is one pathway to fairness, maybe a bit more competition could be another. In the meantime, until we eventually see the government step in with guidelines around this wild financial West, How can we know of any of these fintechs, Coho included? How do we know whether their interests are better aligned than that of the big five? When everyone is seeing exits Mm -hmm. from startup founders that line their pockets with generational wealth, how do you, do you get a question on that? Like, oh, you just found a market that you, but you really just want your own exit. Yeah, um, I do. I, I, I frankly don't care (laughs) like at the end of the day i'm a capitalist like my my favorite part about this thing is i get to build a big business which is deeply useful and it's only useful if we're delivering a ton of user value like if we come up with something incrementally better than banks we won't be successful so the utility of a business and my outcome i think they dovetail here yeah whatever happens at least i know that like i'm aligned with what i was trying to do I mean, there's a lot more to say on this, but the main take home from him is the dynamic of what used to gate this community is changing. At its core, Coho will need to continue building its services on top of a bank's skeletal infrastructure, which sounds, I don't know, like cooperation, right? But on the other hand, aside from the protecting your money part of the equation, Daniel's working hard to do everything else better than the banks. So they're competing. And on the other hand, I have three hands for the sake of this, some fintech companies like Wealthsimple have made their name by opening up markets to new customers that banks were never serving in the first place. In other words, they're rivals. But they also need each other, or at least, so it seems, from talking to the new kid on the block. If they had a relationship status on Facebook, it would be, it's complicated. So I need to talk to one of the people who owns the block and realistically have the most power to set the terms. I'm Alexander Pay. I'm the Vice President of Innovation for Tech and Ops at RBC. 
It's Alexander's job to spark innovation at one of the country's oldest companies and Canada's largest as of last year's numbers, Bank. And full disclosure here, I love RBC. Not only do I privately bank with them, but it's also where I have my mortgage, my two business accounts, and my investing. I do that through RBC Dominion Securities. So in one sense, uh, I got a horse in this race. Still, I'm genuinely curious about what RBC has to say about the changes to banking on the horizon. First off, Alexander, like Daniel, doesn't think innovation really can or should look like it does in modern startup culture. There's no doubt that there is this kind of romanticized narrative um, that we should all act like um, Silicon Valley startups. And that that's the key to success, that it's casual dress, it's foosball, it's um, no hierarchy, um, etc. We're an 84,000 person organization that's 150 years old in you know, a highly regulated industry and a highly regulated um, market. Acting like a startup, um, you know, to me makes no sense whatsoever. Think of it this way. Remember Regina George's rich mom in Mean Girls, played by Amy Poehler? Just want you to know, if you need anything, don't be shy, okay? There are no rules in this house. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. <laughs> right, Regina? Please stop talking. Okay. I'm going to make you girls a hump day treat. And I know, I know, I know the fate and direction of our banking system has bigger consequences than whether Rachel McAdams thinks Amy Poehler is cool. But it does make a great point. If you're always aligning your identity with and pandering to the newest trends, you're in trouble. It's a bad approach to parenting, and it's a bad approach to money. That's why Alexander, like any other serious analyst in the business, recognizes that there is an obvious need to guard security and manage systemic risk. Continuity on that is the starting point. But it's not like he has anything against startups. Before RBC, he led market development and mobile for PayPal. You know, one of the original fintech disruptors. People ask me a lot what the biggest differences are for working for a very large fintech um, or, or a technology company or working for a large established bank. And I say to people, in a lot of senses, it's not as different as people think it's going to be. He's not distracted by some of the flashier elements of disruption culture and what he's seeing from these new financial services players. Well, he thinks many are not as agile as they tend to tell us. There might be a certain element of some of the perks and benefits, et cetera. But, you know, when I think about, you know, the drive towards agile and being product centric, there are a lot of big technology companies that aren't, are in a lot of ways, no further down the path than the incumbent banks, right? Like these types of changes and transformation, I think a lot of, a lot of people think or assume that these were a given down in the Bay Area, given in Europe, et cetera. They're not. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe that the, the fintechs will do a better job of that. Um, and I certainly, you know, and certainly encourage them. Um, but at the same time, they may be able to do it a little bit faster. Um, but that's, we don't necessarily see that as an issue. I certainly encourage them, but this is the crux. Alexander's sentiment about this new sort of relationship has two sides to it. Let's break that down. First. What does it mean for a bank to encourage their competition? So we, we get asked this question all the time, certainly as an innovation group. Do we want to work with Canadian fintechs and startups? And we tell very honestly, the door is wide open, right? There is a team within my group has a formal mandate 
to work and bring the best of the Canadian global fintech ecosystem to RBC's doors. When we look at a market like Canada, when we look at a market like financial services, I think the best end results for the incumbents and the fintechs is going to be trying to find a way to work together. As in we're going to the same place, so we might as well split the gas money? We spent a lot of time very much focused on strategic partnerships, and strategic partnerships have to be mutually beneficial. So when we think about it, we have a lot of customers in a lot of markets. We are able to give access to some of these customers, to these fintechs. In return, they are giving us um, something potentially unique from a technology or business perspective, because maybe there is some unique IP that we can leverage. Maybe there is an opportunity where, where their services are niche and able to deliver us a solution or fix a problem for us that one of the larger players aren't able to. In practice, he echoes a lot of what Daniel said. You know, banks and startups have a certain complementary fit in the Canadian market. Banks have the infrastructure to access the market as it currently exists, and startups have innovative technology and business models that help reach new ones. So that's the encouragement part. And now, here's that other side. The but. Alexander thinks the narrative around the cool kids leading generational disruption it's a story as old as time. When you look at, you know, an industry or vertical like financial services, which has been around since the dawn of time, there is always going to be um, established players or incumbents, and there is always going to be the challengers. You know, I think in today's era, we talk a lot about fintechs, we talk a lot about startups, scale-ups, challengers, um, etc. That's nothing new. See, if fintechs are Regina George, then maybe RBC is... I don't know, Tim Meadows' character, Principal Duvall? I just wanted to say that you're all winners. And I could not be happier that this school year is ending. Basically, the cool kids cycle through, but the principal more or less stays the same. We were innovating long before we were using that term. We'll innovate long after. You know, just probably a handful of years ago, mobile teams and digital teams would have absolutely been branded as innovation groups. Rewind a, a decade or so back, you know, your e-commerce, your, your kind of like internet 2.0, they were innovation groups. I think in today's day and age, especially here in Canada, there's no doubt that, that let's call them customers. Customers have higher expectations. So the reality is that innovation is just something that's going to continue. Okay, so Alexander thinks these startups ultimately aren't going to upset the balance of power. It's notable that even so-called disruptors, including both Wealthsimple and Coho, don't actually embrace that language. Directional improvement is what Daniel called it. You might call this being coy, but look, from where Alex is sitting, I would assume probably very high up in the air above Bay Street, scanning for new entrants on the horizon. That's just business as usual. But I also think that it's less about a coup and it's more probably a strong reminder to, you know, the five or the RBCs of the world that we have to maintain a very customer centric focus. Even with all their cool services, the way they represent our data and challenge our bad habits. I mean, personally, I just can't get on board with fintechs. And I'm not just talking about Wealthsimple or Coho. I mean, with any of these startups. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad they exist. I really like Daniel. But here's the thing. What a lot of these services do is empower their users to better manage their money. And well, that's just not my style. Again, I have private banking. The fees are ridiculous. 
But just listen to a conversation I just had with my good friend, Bruce Celery. You know, I had a moment in time in at the end of third year Queen's University, Kea, that I ran out of money and I had to pay rent. And I, I, I had nothing, I had like zero dollars to my name. My mother could not afford to give me any money. I had to shop at Shoppers Drug Mart because back then, you're my age, you know this. Yes. You could not pay for groceries with a credit card in an AMP or an IGA. Right. But you could use a credit card in Shoppers. So I bought bread and peanut butter and ramen noodles um, in Shoppers Drug Mart because I had, to buy, I, had no, I had to buy with my credit card. And that feeling of complete and utter helplessness, I promised to myself that I would never feel that way again for the rest of my life. And I haven't. I was so insanely into the details of the money that I didn't have that I had to check every nickel and every penny or I wouldn't eat. So now I don't want to get the feedback loop on my spending, whether it's positive or not, because in all honesty, I had to care so much at one point in my life. And now I'm lucky enough that I don't have to. And that is genuinely what makes the disruption in this space so exciting to me because it's not for me at all. Everyone should have options. Everyone should have access to services that truly serve them, that make something so hard just a little bit more manageable. Personally, even with regulations that encourage secure innovation, I don't know, I'm skeptical that neobanks will fundamentally reshape our financial foundations anytime soon. No. If anything has the power to threaten the banking establishment, save for another depression, which would disrupt everything, it's less fintech and more what some have coined tech fin. We start off with the latest tech company to get into the payment space, Facebook. That stock jumping up. You can think of this sort of as a wallet on Facebook. It lets you send payments to friends. You pay for it with Google Pay. You actually have the, the rails, the debit rails from your city checking account. Apple launched its highly anticipated titanium credit card in August in partnership with Goldman Sachs. This is Apple Card, a credit card created by Apple, not a bank. So it's simple, transparent, and private. At this point, money is pretty much customer data. Over the last few years, some of the most powerful companies in the world have slowly begun to offer services that at one time, only our banks could. This past July, the International Monetary Fund, IMF, warned in a recent paper that if big tech continues to make its way into the market, they say it's not unlikely that the banks may be, in their words, left behind. And this wouldn't be a disruption like any before it. Because if banking tanks, so does our economy. So, the coup? Well, it may be on the way. Thanks to our guests, Fiona, Daniel, and Alexander. This episode was produced and written by Ali Graham and Chris Connolly. Mixing is by Matteo Palmzano, Chandra Bullicon, and Ali Graham. 
Our theme song is by the magnificent Jim Guthrie, and additional music is by the Blue Dot Sessions and Art List. This podcast is made by Church and State for Rogers Frequency Podcast Network. Hey, I'm your host and executive producer and RBC customer, Ron Tite. Next week is our final episode of our first season. We're so excited, aren't we, Allie? We're very excited. Come on, say something so they hear your voice. Thanks to all those who have been listening. And if you've been enjoying the coup, hey, come on, tell your friends about it. Tell us what you think. Rate and review. Until then. Try to forget about the other kids and how they make us sweat. But try not to forget where you lose your edge. Don't lose your edge. It's a story as old as time. A tale as old. Now, what was that beauty? The beauty and the beast. <laughs>